Maybe you haven't noticed this, but film comedies are not big box office anymore. In the 1980s, though, film comedies were everything. And there were a group of writers, performers, directors who were creating things like Ghostbusters, Blues Brothers, Animal House. You notice they're like guys doing all this stuff, and that is indeed part of the equation here. But these were big, big box office movies, 48 hours. Many of them came from Saturday Night Live. Some of them came from its Canadian counterpart. We're going to talk about all that today with somebody who has looked very carefully at this period of movie making. We're also going to include in our conversation two comedians, because who knows more about comedy than they do. So get ready for a trip through those classic 1980s comedies after the news. All right, we're going to have a conversation today about 1980s comedies, although we're, we're not going to pin ourselves, you know, quite so sadistically to just one uh, set of years. I mean, there's going to be some late 70s films and maybe some early 90s films that kind of define this period. But what defines this period is Animal House, Meatballs, The Blues Brothers, Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters, uh, a whole bunch of, of other movies and the work of certain creators, the work of certain performers. It was a time in which comedies were popular entertainment in a way that maybe they aren't even now. Um, they were a time when comedies attracted huge audiences and big box office numbers. So uh, let me tell you a little bit more about who's here with us to do that. Nick Desemlian. Uh, Nick Desemlian. Uh, did, I do, did I do that right, Nick? Was that a good pronunciation? You did that fantastically. All right. I'm very impressed. All right. Nick yeah. Desemlian is author of Wild and Crazy Guys, How the Comedy Mavericks of the 80s Changed Hollywood Forever. Carolyn Payne is a stand-up comedian, actress, a dancer, and a regular uh, appearer on this show where mostly she complains about the movies that we make her see <laughs> and talk about. So this, this, I, I feel like the debt is paid in full after today's show because we'll these say. are movies you actually want to talk about. And Dan Callwhite is a stand-up comedian based in New Haven. All right. So, uh, Nick, I'm going to have you kind of set up this idea here. I mean, in, in your book, you are making the case, I think, for this period of time, this group of performers and creators as, if not the apex of American film comedy, something close, right? Something special. Go ahead and make that case. Yeah, I just think these these guys were kind of incredible. They were one-offs and, and the fact that they all kind of came together uh, was kind of amazing. I'm not sure that's happened before. Just all of these very big, larger-than-life characters, Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, all of them very different to each other, but big characters. And yeah, they, they produced event movies, stuff like Ghostbusters, Blues Brothers, um, you know, Caddyshack, just things which, you know, really kind of captured people's imaginations. And they were all kind of original and they were all different to each other. And I think it's, it is an amazing kind of period of comedy for sure. It seems to me that I was thinking about this uh, a couple of hours ago and thinking that in a way, one of the things that distinguishes this period is what flows into American comedy. I think there's two big things that flow into American comedy, and they're both kind of odd. One of them is Canada, 
Um, <laughs> and, and the other one is Harvard, um, that there was this incredible generation of, first of all, Canadian writers and performers who uh, came up through Second City type companies uh, in, in Canada, uh, guided by Lauren Michaels. And then you also had this group of guys who'd worked on the Harvard Lampoon and had transferred those talents pretty seamlessly from there to American television and American film. So, you know, I mean, and, and Nick, as I th- you think back in comedy, I mean, the Marx Brothers didn't go to college. Uh, uh, you know, Ben Hecht went to college for three days. Uh, George S. Kaufman never went to college. You know, one of the things that, one of the ways this period begins, it begins kind of with Animal House, which takes place at a college, pretty clearly not Harvard and not where, not the period of time where these writers and performers went to college. But it's about sort of, it's the declaration of war of the slobs versus the snobs, which is going to become a big motif in this period. I would assume you would agree with that, Nick. Yeah, I mean, I start the book with Animal House. I think it kicked off everything. And there were so many uh, films that I think only exist because of Animal House. You know, Stripes, Mm. uh, Caddyshack, they all kind of do that slobs versus snobs kind of dynamic. But it was huge. It was like a huge, huge hit. You know, it was the guys from Harvard, but they were making this incredibly anarchic uh, film that just made college look like kind of a war zone with all the craziness that was going on. So, you know, it definitely set the pace and the tone for that whole kind of decade of anarchic kind of rebellious humor. And then Canada. Yeah, definitely. You know, the the SCTV guys were up in um, Toronto and Edmonton, like John Candy and and, uh, Rick Moranis, Martin Shaw, all those guys were, were doing sort of Stuff akin to what Saturday Night Live was doing, but a bit more polite, maybe. Yes, because they're Canadian. So, um, so all right, Carolyn, this is it. We're actually talking about movies that you like. Um, so, what does this period in comedy mean to you? I mean, what I, you're going to probably embrace slightly different set of movies than maybe some of the guys uh, on the show are going to embrace. But what's the period like for you? So. I mean, I was a pretty little kid in the 80s, but uh, was for some reason allowed to watch these movies as Mm -hmm. like, you know, a six, seven year old. So these movies really raised me and influenced me and uh, became a part of who I was. Uh, I mean, to this day, I will tell you that Ghostbusters is one of my favorite movies, Mm -hmm. if not number one, definitely like top three. Um, And... I I also want to throw in as as a woman, I feel like there are a lot of great uh, female comedians in this era and movies nine to five, big business. I really feel like those ones were huge for me in that not only do they have that, you know, I mean, I was a kid. I didn't really understand what like feminism was, but I understood that like these were women getting it done. And uh, also just the the these female comedians that were keeping up with men and carrying movies, whereas like Ghostbusters and Animal House and, you know, all of these other movies like that are Blues Brothers. They're male. They're male carried and by great comedians. But yeah. And we're going to circle back to the sexual politics and uh, the changes in political correctness uh, that have ensued since the (laughs) 1980s. But uh, but Dan, what about you? These uh, just talking to you before we went on the air, I could see that your scholarship about these movies has kept up. You're still watching these movies. I mean, totally. So, I mean, when we were going back and forth on uh, email, we were talking about our love of Ghostbusters. And I mean, I watched it every day when I got home from kindergarten on videotape (laughs) every day. I swear to God. And it's like, and you talk about, I mean, I IMDb tons of things, so I know so much about Ghostbusters. Like, it was written by Dan Aykroyd and uh, Belushi, and it was supposed to be uh, Ghostbusters in Outer Space. 
So how wild would that, that have been? To, and they're just like, no, we, Ivan Reitman was like, no, we can't be ghost busting in outer space. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. But like any, any of those things, and Bill Murray is basically everything of it. My persona is Bill Murray. Like just that lovable jerk. Like everyone, he's a, he's a slacker. And everyone just wants to kind of be him. And it always works out for him. Like Stripes, I saw Stripes at an age, I mean, I had to cover my eyes, my dad would say, cover your eyes. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the scene when they go in the mud wrestling pit See, or whatever See, my parents would let me watch it, but then be like, don't talk about this at school. <laughs> <laughs> Do not. <laughs> this is not uh, okay for you to be. They made it clear that I shouldn't have been seeing it. but Yeah, no, but I mean, yeah, it's everything to me. I absolutely love yeah, these movies. Yeah, Bill Murray, I, I think... As a young kid, and even now, I would cite him as just this huge, like a huge person of influence. And his the way he is on screen, the way he he's like the antihero. Mm-hmm. Like you should not like him at all. He is a total jerk. <laughs> he's like lazy. He's kind of like slovenly in his appearance, and uh, you know he just talks with such snark. And in this, like, sing-songy voice that's, yes. like, mocking. Right. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get to him. I want to circle back to Animal House for a second. Let's uh, hear, in fact, a clip from Animal House. You're going to hear, hear some uh, voices in, uh, familiar to me, you, you, including Tim Matheson as Eric Stratter and uh, Peter Riegert as Donald uh, Shainstein, was, I think his name was, John Belushi as, of course, John Blutarski uh, and some other people. I think they're getting chewed out here maybe by the dean. So here's a little bit of Animal House. You clowns have been on double secret probation since the beginning of this semester. Double secret probation? And that means one more slip-up, one more mistake, and this fraternity of yours has had it at favor. Well, that was pleasant. Nice of him to stop by, don't you think? We've got to do something. He's serious this time. I think he knows about the exams. He's right. You're right. We got to do something. Absolutely. You know what we got to do? Toga, toga party. party. We're on double secret probation, whatever that is. We can't afford to have a toga party. You guys up for a toga party? Toga! Toga! Ah, yeah, I think they like the idea, Hoof. Oh, Otter, please don't do this. We got news for you, pal. They're going to nail us no matter what we do. So we might as well have a good time. Toga! So, Nick, one of the things we see here, as we said before, declaration of war between the slobs and the snobs. Although, to tell you the truth, Tim Matheson and Peter Rieger, you know, they probably could have slid into one of the snobbier uh, fraternities. And that's a little bit of the joke here, right? You've got Harvard guys writing stuff about what it's like to be counterculturists when they, in fact, have been through uh, one of the you know great imprinting factories of, of the ruling class uh, in America. But I think the other thing that you see here, and it's a, maybe kind of a rejection of the late 60s and early 70s value, you see rebellion for rebellion's sake, right? These people want to displace the ruling class, not because they have anything better to offer. In fact, they would prefer to offer something worse and more chaotic. I don't react to that, Nick. Yeah, I mean, not to get too into the social commentary, but obviously the 70s was Watergate, it was Vietnam, there was all this kind of stuff going on. And uh, Animal House comes along in 1978, and it's just this blast of kind of fun and anarchy and, and 
kind of cocking a snoot at the system and authority, which you actually see like all the way through these films like Ghostbusters, Caddyshack, they're all doing the same thing. And so I think the fact it came along at the end of the 70s and, and was really subversive was like a big part of why it was kind of so massive and hit so big at that point. Right. So um, I, I want to sort of shift from there. I feel as though, so you've got this sort of Saturday Night Live group and you've got this SCTV kind of Canadian group. And then you've got a couple of other people who are kind of outliers, I think. Maybe the biggest outlier of all, though, is Steve Martin. Mm. Steve Martin, this guy, Jonathan. I am not a bum. I'm a jerk. I once had wealth, power, and the love of a beautiful woman. Now, I only have two things. My friends and... Uh, my thermos. My story? Okay. It was never easy for me. I was born a poor black child. So uh, I'm going to go over to the comedians first here. Uh, once again, uh, this is your childhood. But I would imagine, like, I have a hard time. I'm going to explore with you later how you were processing Ghostbusters <laughs> as children. But, like, it seems to me Steve Martin, Carolyn, is a great on-ramp because he, he really is functioning in a lot of different levels, including a lot of things that kids would probably get, happy feet and balloon animals and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get, I think that I was an odd child in some ways who had sort of um, I, I sort of had like a more advanced taste mm -hmm. uh, and our family had a tradition on Thanksgiving we always watched planes, trains and automobiles mm -hmm. so it, Steve Martin if you say Steve Martin that is like what pops into my mind like him just going off on John Candy in a mm -hmm. hotel room and uh I, I Steve. <laughs> Those aren't pillows. Yeah, <laughs> chatty Kathy doll. <laughs> like he just is to me. Steve Martin is one of those people who it, some comedians are at their best where they're reacting to those around them, mm -hmm. and then some comedians are at their best where they're like the instigator. They're crazy and un, and being unhinged. And Steve Martin is one of those people who can do both mm -hmm. and almost simultaneously, mm -hmm. which is sort of what he does in like. In in the jerk and and in plain Shantum automobiles, um, and and he's so. I I also think another one like Little Shop of Horrors. Oh yeah. So I mean that is that movie is just terrific, and Steve Martin singing the "You'll Be a Dentist" song mm -hmm. in that. I mean that I I remember as a kid being like, "Wow, I can't believe this is the same guy," mm -hmm. <laughs> like it because of how, he just to me is one of those people who sort of has. A broad skill set in, yes. in a lot of in a lot of ways, and how he approaches roles and how he approaches comedy. Like he's he's in a different. I agree that he's sort of in a different category for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, my two favorite Steve Martins are uh, Three Amigos, 
Okay, which yeah, I, I can definitely. recite so many lines <laughs> from that movie. And then My Blue Heaven, if you've ever seen that one before. So he's supposed to, it was based upon, um, what's it called? Henry Hill. So there's two books that were written. Uh, so who was, I can't think of My Blue Heaven, the writer. Uh, uh, she was the wife of the guy that wrote um, Goodfellas. So, Nicholas Blake. Yes. yes. So it's uh, Steve Martin. Nora, Nora Ephron being the wife. Yes, 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 yes. So, I mean, and that has so many incredible lines. And once again, that's Rick Moranis is in that. He's the FBI agent that's kind of trying to rein in Steve Martin. But I mean, how have I never seen this? Oh, are you kidding me? It's so. I think it's like 1993 or so. so I know what my yeah. weekend plans are. Yeah, so, there you go. So, so Nick, you uh, might also got dark hair in that one. It's like one yeah, of the yeah. Steve yeah. Martin's yeah. and a flat top. So uh, I remember <laughs> the first. Time, I remember the first time I saw Steve Martin. Steve Martin had been a writer on the Smothers Brothers comedy series. On their last episode, as they were being canceled, they brought out all the writers. And the last person they brought out, they said, "There's this guy in the writers' room. His name is Steve Martin. We don't know who he is or who hired him." And and he came out and he did some of this stuff uh, that really became a lot of his early signature. Nick and so Martin in his early days is a is a Dadaist, right? He is he's messing around with the actual forms of comedy. He's doing stuff that kind of assault your expectations about. Comedy. He's doing stuff that is constantly running its thumb down the knife edge between stupid and unbelievably smart. And in a way, I think he's kind of different from a lot of the people he winds up collaborating with. He's also reverential about the past, right? This is a guy who he almost has uh, Woody Allen's nostalgia for 30s and 40s. He winds up trying to make these kind of Howard Hawks type screwball comedies, All of Me, uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, things like that. So, I mean, Nick, in a way, I see Steve Martin as kind of sui generis, kind of a guy who's connected. He's uh, connected to, uh, I mean, he's a genuine intellectual about philosophy and modern art. This is a guy, he kind of doesn't really fit the slob comedy motif exactly. No, definitely. I mean, he was doing his own thing. I think Rick Moranis uh, coined the phrase anti-comedy for what, what he was doing because he was kind of poking fun at what, you know, he was trying to, he was really interested in philosophy. He almost kind of, uh, I think he majored in philosophy and then mm. he was trying to subvert jokes and break them down and do really interesting kind of intellectual things but at the same time was really funny physically and could do juggling and and rope tricks and stuff and i I think he's like the true renaissance man out of the pack like he could do anything um i love dead men don't wear plaid it's such a weird kind of experimental film where it's like him catapulted into a load of old classic noir films and it's hilarious but very strange I during the making of or during the marketing of Pennies from Heaven, I had like a lot of access to the people who were involved in it, this. Not Steve Martin, but the <laughs> the people who were working on it. So Pennies from Heaven is kind of a uh, it was based on I think a British series by Dennis Potter, and it was a kind of a send up of '30s song and dance kind of uh, uh, movies. And uh, Harold Ross, I think, was the director, and he directed a lot of Broadway musicals and stuff. And when he got Steve Martin. He assumed that Steve Martin knew how to dance because he'd seen Steve Martin do all this crazy stuff, you know, with his body and and dancing and stuff like that. And he said he said that after you know, half an hour, he said to Steve Martin, "You've been faking all this. You you just been you've been able to pull this off with no training whatsoever. You don't know anything, do you?" Uh, and and that's sort of like what Martin does again and again, right? Is he just just exudes this kind of can pre- do anything? Yeah, he can do anything, and and he will absolutely fool us every time. I just quickly want to mention a little. Um, 
weird subnote for me about Steve Martin, which is he was kind of obsessed with the Gong Show, uh, and the Gong Show was also Dadaism. Uh, I think most people kind of didn't get that, but he was frequently a panelist on the. He was one of the Gongers on the Gong Show, and then occasionally he would try to infiltrate the the acts. <laughs> so every once in a while there'd be somebody hanging upside down playing a banjo, and it turned out to be Steve Martin who was still you know pretending to try to win the Gong Show. So I think so, Nick. Let's go to one of the other seminal movies that you talk about, and that is uh, the Blues Brothers. Now, the Blues Brothers, also, once again, a very, very high-grossing movie, a movie whose fascination hasn't faded. But, but Nick, I don't know, give me your just general take uh, on where that belongs in this pantheon. Oh, very, very high. I mean, this is one of the, the films of the period that I love the most. I saw it when I was very young on a, on a family holiday, and it kind of blew me away. And even then, I think I was like, what is this film? This is really unusual and strange. You know, it's a blues kind of musical, but also an action film with this insane car chase, which I could watch endlessly. Um, and it all came from Dan Aykroyd's brain. You know, he went off and, and he'd never written a script before. And he, you know, he, it was so massive. It was inside a phone book folder. Um and he threw it over the producer's fence. And it was just this this bizarre kind of mix of things. Um, and the studio, obviously, Ian Belushi was so hot off of uh, Saturday Night Live, the studio just kind of gave him the green light and then didn't realize till halfway through the shoot that it was like three times over budget and, and gone off the rails. But somehow... It's amazing. Like the the final product kind of worked in a yeah. way that some of these films didn't. Well, that notion of Ackroyd, I didn't know that until uh, you uh, wrote about it in your book. That the, the script is like three times the length of a normal screenplay, and all. To me. This is one of the places where we can maybe point to another. We talked about Canada. We talked about Harvard. I think we have to talk about cocaine too. This is <laughs> this is an era in in which you know comedy writers used to drink or maybe smoke pot or something. They discover this drug that at least creates the illusion of productivity, right? You could do a lot of things, maybe too many things, while you're using cocaine. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and Nick, I'm wondering if B- the Blues Brothers is in many respects an, an expression uh, of that. It's like so much of every Everything is going on in this movie. So much energy is bursting out of there. I wonder if it would have been possible uh, without stimulants. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a more is more like comedy. Like, I, I don't think Akrud was doing quite as much. Um, he, he said uh, that actually cocaine was built into the budget for night shoots. So it was just kind of handed around. So everyone was, was kind of staying up and getting wired. And that was the time when Akrud would join in. But yeah, obviously, Belushi was um, off his face <laughs> uh, most of the shoot. And they had to kind of shut down for a few days. Um, but yeah, it's definitely just unrestrained. Like, there's no kind of uh, understatement in the Blues Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, comedians in the studio. So, what, what is this, uh, uh, Dan? What's this movie to you? Is it one of your big ones? Uh, definitely. And also, one of the things about the movie is is the music. So, like Dan Aykroyd has his own station on whatever it is, Sirius Satellite, whatever it is, and he plays old R and B and stuff like that. So, I mean the, I mean, uh, just absolutely incredible music that's <laughs> like kind of driving this comedy as well. So, it's just a great. Everything works. I think it's like a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. If you go back and you look at those different <laughs> things or whatever it may be. And I know that shouldn't matter as a litmus test or whatever it is, but yeah, if you just think about some of the acts that they have that just are performing, like Muddy Waters is in there and all that other crazy stuff, and it's just like, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Firing on all cylinders, as I like to say. <laughs> yeah, this movie is, it's just a lot. Like, mm-hmm. it is it is a lot. You, you you feel like you're doing cocaine watching this movie. <laughs> like, it's so, it's so much that by the time you're watching that car chase, and the music became, like, iconic. Mm. To me, it almost like if I think of blues music, it's really in the context of Blues Brothers. Mm-hmm. Like it's not that it it sort of took on that genre for me musically. Um, 
Yeah, I wouldn't rate this one as like this wouldn't make my top five, mm-hmm. shockingly, for this for for this era of film. But I definitely have a respect for it and will sit and watch it like, you know, anytime I it pass crosses my path. Yeah. All right. So uh, Blues Brothers, uh, I think the only movie that has its own rates its own chapter in Nick's book. And we'll go out with a Blues Brothers tune. Everybody needs somebody to love. Somebody to love. Someone to love. Someone to love. Sweetheart to miss. Sweetheart to miss. Sugar to kiss. Sugar to kiss. I need you, you, you. I need you, you, you. I need you, you, you. In the morning, when my soul's on fire. Sometimes I feel, I feel a little sad inside. When I'm back on the streets, man. Now, 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 You've been telling everybody I'm sleeping with you, huh? No. Well, that explains it. That's why these people treat me like some dime store bluesy. They think I'm screwing the boss. That's not it at all. Oh, and you just love it, don't you? It gives you some sort of cheap thrill, like knocking over pencils and picking up papers. Now, let's don't get excited. Get your scummy hands off of me. Look, I've been straight with you from the first day I got here, and I put up with all your pinching and staring and chasing me around the desk because I need this job, but this is the last straw. All right, now, wait. Let's let's, let's just sit down and... Look, I got a gun out there in my purse, and up to now I've been forgiven and forgetting because of the way I was brought up, but I'll tell you one thing. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine. And I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. (laughs) Don't think I can't do it. Okay, we're talking about 80s comedies uh, with Nick DeSemlian. He is the features editor of Empire Magazine and the author of Wild and Crazy Guys, How the Comedy Mavericks of the 80s Changed Hollywood Forever. Carolyn Payne is a stand-up comedian, actress, dancer, regular guest on this show. You all know her by now. And uh, Daniel Colwaite making his uh, debut on this show, stand-up comedian based in New Haven. So, Carolyn, I'm going to start with you because you're a girl. Um, and um, I, I would argue, I mean, Nick's book is called Wild and Crazy Guys. And I would argue that the 80s are not really a great period for women's comedy, but maybe you would beg to differ. I feel like it was a harder period for women's comedies. I think there were definitely less of them, but that doesn't mean that the ones that came out, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, we just heard that clip from 9 to 5. Uh, we have that. You have Big Business, Outrageous Fortune with uh, Bette Midler and Shelley Long, and George Carlin is in that. Mm. I, I, I mean, but he takes a back seat to these women who are, you know, driving the car here in this. And uh, I think that nine to five is I mean, and it's kind of a movie that like now sort of is getting this resurgence in the hashtag me too era. Mm-hmm. And it's a movie that really stands up like some of these other movies are very funny. And but they are very they almost have this like very 80s period period specific uh, quality to them. Nine to five, I think, is unique because it it just it stays it's current, um, and also I mean it's just brilliant. I think uh, Lily Tomlin, as a comedian, is I I would probably rank her as just like the most influential female comedian to me, um, and I I think that. Nine to five is just it's so brilliant. I mean, and it's so smart. And if you're going to talk about uh, women, female driven comedy from this period, I think that that movie really, really takes it. 
Well, there's a way in which, uh, you know, the, the pipeline works a little bit differently here. That if you think about some of the work, in Nick, that is done in the 1980s that is good, it often does involve somebody like Lily Tomlin, who didn't come out of Saturday Night Live. She came out of Laugh-In. Or a movie like Private Benjamin that involves Goldie, Goldie Hawn, Hawn, who didn't come out of Saturday Night Live. She came out of Laugh-In. You really, like, a, a decade or more uh, before that, that the, the great talents of Saturday Night Live, the, the first core group, Jane Curtin, Lorraine Newman, Gilda Radner, you know, for various reasons, didn't have gigantic film careers. It's going to be a while before Saturday Night Live produces the the kind of women. I mean, now they've done it where they, I think they've kind of taken over. But there's something going on in the 80s. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's a reason, Nick, that your book is called Wild and Crazy Guys, I think. Yeah, I think definitely it was part of the culture. I was just reading a quote from Johnny Carson, who was talking about female comics and why he didn't like having them on his show in the 70s and saying they're a little too aggressive for my taste. And and definitely people like John Belushi, Bill Murray to an extent, when they were on Saturday Night Live, didn't really kind of nurture an atmosphere where, you know, the, the, the female comics were kind of at the forefront of it. Um, so I think there was definitely some ingrained sexism. I, I think the, the real tragedy is kind of Gilda Radner. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, she's so funny on that show. She should have got the, the movie opportunities, better movie opportunities. She did make some films, but they're not particularly great. Her roles are not particularly great. Um, so it, it was a tough time, I think, uh, definitely for, for female comedians. You know, and Dan, there's also a way in which a lot of the things in this, I mean, look, we live in a, in a much more sensitive, some would say a hypersensitive era where comedians struggle to find a joke that they can tell mm-hmm. that won't offend people. The, you know, part of the whole idea uh, of the 80s was they were going to these these slab comedies, these uh, anarchic, nihilistic, John Belushi type comedians, they were going to let everything hang out and they gonna worry, weren't going to worry too much about who they offended. Well, like, uh, we're talking about 9 to 5, and unfortunately it wasn't something I really gravitated towards <laughs> as, a, as a child or, or, or even revisited. Like, so I was trying to think of uh, something I could come back with. And like ruthless people, have you ever seen that yeah, before? Ruthless sure. people. I mean, Bette Midler in that, and it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen before. But that's a powerful woman. She's uh, she gets kidnapped. Mm-hmm. I then, think Bette Midler like deserves. I I think she really carried a lot of female comic roles mm-hmm. in film throughout the eighties in in a stellar way. Yes. I really agree. A ruthless people. Is yeah, a great that, one. I mean that, and that's kind of where my comedy lies because it's so wild. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the thing with nine to five, and this is going to sound like it's set in an office, and I hate working in an office. So like anything, it's just like ah, I don't want to. And I love Dabney Coleman. I think he's absolutely fantastic. I know it gets he's wild. A... They steal a body from a hospital. I didn't know that. I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, go back and give it a revisit. So, but you know, so Nick, I mean, Animal House has a scene where uh, Thomas Hulse's character has like an angel and a devil kind of debating basically about whether he should ravish uh, a defenseless woman. There, are, there are things from this era that are yep. make you uncomfortable, right? Mm. Oh, definitely. I mean, Animal House. Yeah, when you go back and you rewatch that, there is there is tons of stuff. So there's that sort of date rape scene where obviously he doesn't end up doing it, but it's still pretty icky. You know, there's the kind of topless pillow fight. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. And you get that in Stripes and some of it in Caddyshack. So, yeah, I mean, the, the sexual politics of that era definitely has not necessarily dated very well. Um, and you've got even sleazier films off the back, like Revenge of the Nerds has got some really oh, yeah. uh, tough stuff to watch these days. All right. So um, 
the other thing I want to talk a little bit about here, there's one more person. We've got a few more people we need to introduce, but one major person we need to introduce. And one thing that I would say about Animal House uh, and the Blues Brothers is th- these are movies about white guys, white college guys who have exalted quite properly black culture and black music very specifically and are very excited about it and see it as the most vital and, and exciting soundtrack for their own lives. But it is kind of about white guys curating this stuff as opposed and obviously in the Blues Brothers an awful lot of black musicians make appearances and stuff but all kind of le- we're, we're kind of led up to this music taken by the hand by, by Aykroyd and Belushi because there isn't really the comedy star yet who can get us to this place on his own until this guy comes along this is from Coming to America listen real Americans Pound for pound, Sugar Ray Robinson, the greatest fighter ever lived. Oh, come on, man. What about Joe Lewis? The blonde bomber. Now, that was a great boxer. You damn right. I suppose nobody in here ever heard of Cassius Clay. We got a point. Cassius Clay was a bad Yeah, hey, I ain't saying Clay ain't bad. I'm just saying I stopped liking Cassius Clay. What's the change name to Muhammad Ali? What kind of is that? Wait a second. Wait a second. A man has the right to change his name to whatever he wants to change it to. And if a man wants to be called Muhammad Ali, God damn it, this is a free country. You should respect his wishes and call the man Muhammad Ali. His mama named him Clay. I'm going to call him Clay. Mm-hmm. That's right. I say Clay. Get out of here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He going to always be Clay to me. I don't give a what change name to. He is Clay. He Clay to me. I say Clay. Well, then you're a putz. The three of you. Three putzes. You should change the name outside from Mighty Shop to the Three Putzes. All right, so you, we hear Eddie Murphy actually doing three of the voices in that clip. So, Nick, we have the arrival suddenly of this black comedy star whose talents are just prodigious. I mean, yeah, as you can hear, he can go in and out of just about any voice or idiom that you can imagine. He's fun to look at. He's fun to watch. And I, I was trying to think. I, I didn't have a lot of time to think about this. I mean, I think the other thing about Eddie Murphy is that kind of like Cary Grant, he was plausibly a romantic lead uh, in certain situations. He was an attractive enough. Enough, uh, sexy enough guy to be able to pull that off, but also could be in a total screwball situation, which is where he found himself more often. But there's, once again, a way in which, Nick, it seems to me Eddie Murphy stands out in this pack. Oh, he's he's incredible. Uh, I mean, his, it was so much fun to write about his story because it's so unlikely. You know, he came out of nowhere and he was just determined to be to be famous and be rich and be massive. And he was. Um, but they didn't want him to be on Saturday Night Live to begin with. And he almost got fired from 48 hours. But, you know, he just kept he was so determined that he just made it happen. And yeah, incredibly talented. And Coming to America is such a great showcase for him because not only is he doing kind of multiple characters for the first time, but the main character, Prince Hakeem, that he plays is really untypical of Eddie Murphy. He's this really kind of innocent, naive guy. And he, I think he's brilliant in that film. But, right. Yeah. And, and great. we should say that, yeah, he was, it wasn't as though Hollywood or Saturday Night Live or anybody opened its arms to this guy under consideration for the role of Axel Foley before him. Mickey Rourke, Al Pacino, Dennis Quaid, James Kahn, Jack Nicholson. So you've got, you know, this movie, Nick, with this classic line, you know, I'm your worst nightmare, a black man with a badge or however that thing goes, which could not be said by any of those people, obviously. I mean, I mean, he he's not anybody's 
Ridley's first choice, but he turns this movie into something it could never have been. Yeah, and against all the odds, like they wanted to fire him. They didn't think he was particularly good. It was his first time performing in a film. You know, he had only done stand up before and uh, everyone thought he was a little bit shaky. He wasn't that good in that many takes. And then he had this big kind of set piece inside the club where he had to go in and deliver that monologue and it's really edgy material and he just improvised that line that he said um and he was just electric and uh, i spoke to the director walter hill and he said when when he said that when he was performing that scene he turned to the producer and said we're going to be rich because <laughs> they just saw <laughs> like this is crazy how good he is right so carolyn it's, it's interesting that movie is the number one movie uh, of the year that year ghostbusters being number two uh once again we're at a time where comedy movies are big box office in a way that they are are not now and and yeah i don't know well just i'm gonna let both of you guys riff a little bit on eddie murphy but if you want to start i mean i kind of wish i had been old enough to like <laughs> you know, be experiencing these in a in that like box office in that kind of uh, in the thrill that it would have been to have this be like a social phenomena. I mean, again, like in 1988, I, I, I was, you know, I was real. I was real little. And <laughs> we're, we're looking we're talking about like, you know, a first grader or something like stumbling through. <laughs> um But I saw I saw this movie. I think I saw it on like VHS and yeah. Eddie Murphy, like blew me away in this in this movie and everything he does it's it, vocally to mm-hmm. me he is one of those people who is like a standout i equate him in my mind with how he with like a robin williams right he's you know not what as I mean? manic We're, i don't think no no i mean like you know robin williams minus <laughs> right the manic <laughs> Ta- minus yeah. that manic taking that down and but in his ability to kind of create these voices in the physical comedy and but like Colin said, I mean, there was something appealing about Eddie Murphy. Even right. as like a young kid, I can remember like looking and being like, all right, yeah, Eddie Murphy. Like, <laughs> see, HBO did like I didn't see these in the theater. Like I was too young no. to see them in the yeah. theater. So like HBO made these things part of my life. So like coming to America, trading places, um, mm-hmm. the golden child. Have you ever seen that one mm-hmm. before? Yeah. He goes to Nepal and he's got to get the, the dagger of Ashanti or whatever it is. But it's just he's so incredible because he's an action star as well. Yeah. yeah. There's so many things that he can do. And he's so funny. Coming to America and then Trading Places, of course, is the Dan Aykroyd crossover where mm-hmm. – and he's so good in that. And then they even kind of allude to Trading Places in Coming to America where they see Mortimer and the other yes. brother. <laughs> and he gives him a, you know, all the money or whatever it is. And it was just like – he's like, Mortimer, we're back. <laughs> I, I, I would also add the, a movie that a lot – I'm always surprised how many people have not seen this movie. But talk about the two of the people that we were talking about crossing over. It comes later. Mm-hmm. But Bowfinger is an oh, amazing yes. movie. And this is this is Steve Martin and, and Eddie Murphy combining in – I, I really do think it's one of the funniest movies uh, that I've ever seen. But we're going to run out of time if we don't get moving here. So let's come <laughs> to the one everybody wants to talk about. I actually do think if there's a movie that defines 1980s comedy – and we've already mentioned it a dozen times mm-hmm. uh, on the show, but but here it is. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Ghostbusters. Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you. So... Nick, um, you know, I, I don't know. There's a way for me in which Ghostbusters epitomizes a lot of the things that we've been talking about, especially this notion 
that a bunch of guys who, on the surface of things, are kind of unprepossessing losers, have <laughs> ultimately the right a- answer. And they're the only ones who have the right answer. The Ghostbusters, which comes in 1984, is probably by that time, you know, there is a chance to react a little bit to the Reagan administration and what its version of authority is. And you, it's such a rejection of authority. You know, the, I, I, I always come back to the, the moment where they're in the New York mayor's office and the cardinal comes in and the mayor kisses the cardinal's ring, you know, and there's this incredible sort of mutual butt-sniffing that's going on among these people who really don't have any ability whatsoever to affect the outcome of this terrible situation. And who does? This bunch of idiots. I mean, to me, Nick, this is kind of the moment where they really make their case for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say that the guy from the EPA, the character Walter yes. Peck, who uh, Bill Murray says has no dick, you know, he's kind of got a point. Like, he's, he's just trying to regulate these guys who have got, you know, unlicensed nuclear, you know, accelerators on their backs. Um you know, they're, they're kind of uh, tampering in some pretty major forces. But, yeah, it's it's an amazing film. It's it's a kind of a lightning-striking kind of situation where I don't think anyone knew what it was going to become. You know, Bill Murray hadn't read the script when he turned up. Um, the cast kind of got thrown together a little bit. Yeah, I don't think anyone kind of expected it. Right. And so, and Dan, I, I do think that we're seeing Murray. Murray is as close to Groucho Marx as he's probably going to get here. Vincent Canby at one point wrote about the fact that Bill Murray had this incredible distance between himself and his characters sometimes that, you know, that it worked somehow comedically, that he clearly didn't believe in the characters or the situation. And that's sort of part of the humor there. There's a way in which he's making a joke about the movie he's in. I, very much so. And Carolyn was talking about it a bit before, just like kind of his sing-songy voice. And there's a scene in the movie where uh, they just got fired. They get kicked off campus from the college, and he's talking to Dan Aykroyd, and they're freaking out about how they're going to live or whatever it is. And he's like, he says, call it luck, call it fate, call it karma. And he's like, he's like, what are we going to do? And he just goes, I don't know, Ray. I don't know. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, I wanted to be him since I was five years old. Right. Like, it's not something you should ever be emulating. No. no. In, in that movie or really any in, in any way. But he is so cool. Yes. He was the cool one. Yes. For sure. You know, if you were going to if you were going to aspire to be one of the Ghostbusters. But if you think about like Harold Ramis, like that was my first time meeting him in a movie. Mm-hmm. So I always thought he was this gigantic nerd, right? Yeah. And then I see him in Stripes, and right. he's like, oh, he's just like, he's incredible. He's just like Bill Murray. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. for years, because I didn't see Stripes probably till I was a little bit older. Same thing. Yeah, I yeah, had yeah. the same reaction. And it was like, or... he's not a gigantic nerd? Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, Egon comes across as slightly less nerdy than your, you know, quintessential nerd trope of Rick Moranis. Right. Uh, he's like not only a nerd, but just a loser. Who mm-hmm. can, you know. Well, although I want to get to, I mean, that, that takes us to Rick Moranis, who's somebody that you uh, deal with also in the book, Nick. And, and so this is a guy who, once again, comes out of that Canadian tradition. It's a little bit more gentle. It's a little more subtle, maybe not in Ghostbusters so much, but a little less obsessed with class and class resentment because Canada is a really kind of different place, you know. <laughs> so, you know, he, uh, John Candy, Martin Short, there's a way in which they are less likely to pull down everything in Pottery Barn than some of the American <laughs> comedians we're talking about, right? 
uh, definitely less anarchic. Yeah, you know, they were doing their thing up in SCTV and some of it was quite kind of highbrow and they're sort of satirizing war and peace and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, what Rick Moranis does in Ghostbusters is amazing. It was meant to be John Candy, kind of famously John Candy turned it down and Rick Moranis was parachuted in and just does this incredibly nerdy character who's obsessed with tax and accounting. And uh, I love every moment of his in, in Ghostbusters. It's some of my favorite stuff. Um, when he's, got the, when he's just, got the colander on his head um, <laughs> and he's, he's reciting this, this Sumerian mythology and there's this terrific moment where after it's all, at one point I think Annie Potts offers him a cup of coffee he goes do, she goes, do you want a cup of coffee and he goes do I? <laughs> you know, yeah, have, have some yes have some the horse I was just about to say his interaction oh. with that horse yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd love to say it on air that's one of the favorite it's my favorite parts of that movie yeah <laughs> Um, there's just there's and 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 I think that whole Canadian thing, you know, which also brings us Dave Thomas and Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, all these people. You know, it. I think if we just had Belushi and Aykroyd just pulling down walls and smashing stuff, and didn't have this other part of it, you wouldn't have the ethos that we're talking about right now. So let's uh, go. Let's go out of here with uh, this particular break. We're going to be back with one more conversation here, but uh, let's. Well, we should actually go out with Rick Moranis singing. The smell first hits me from five blocks away. It's Friday and I can't stay away. The Blue Jays are playing, but I won't likely risk it. I'm here with a plan to binge on her brisket. My mother's brisket. So moist and tender. Always sends me On another Shabbos bender The onions and carrots look nice I don't need them and potatoes, no dice There are only two things that suffice My mother and her brisket My mother's brisket All right, I'm not going to reintroduce the panel because we're going to run out of time if we do, but uh, you should know that Nick DeSumlian wrote The Wild and Crazy Guys, How the Comedy Mavericks of the 80s Changed Hollywood Forever. That's why we're having this conversation. That also includes Carolyn Payne and Daniel Callwhite. So we're hearing uh, Three Amigos. So, Nick, by now it's 1986, and what's happening here is that uh, three of these kind of seminal talents are getting together, but basically two that we haven't talked about, Martin Short and Chevy Chase. And Chevy Chase is kind of interesting, too, just, you know, right at the beginning, uh, a foundational member of Saturday Night Live, but not exactly part of the same crowd as 
Aykroyd, Murray, Belushi. There's a way in which he's different, right? Yeah, Chevy Chase had a very rough ride. Like he started off as as the biggest, certainly within this SNL kind of crowd. Steve Martin was already huge. But, you know, he left Saturday Night Live before anyone else and he went off and he was getting movie offers. He moved to Hollywood and then he just picked really bad scripts and just had one flop after another. Obviously, Caddyshack was, was kind of a, became a cult hit, but he made a lot of bad decisions, made some really terrible films, uh, Modern Problems and uh, Oh, Heavenly Dog. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but no. it's uh, the one where Chevy Chase is inside the body of a dog. No. Um, <laughs> How did that lose? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, I mean, Three Amigos is interesting, Dan, too, because, I mean, this is, you've got two of the great archivists of this world, Martin Short and Steve Martin, both kind of in love with the past, very aware of comedy's past, cinema's past. This movie looks back to a kind of movie that's not being made. There's a great scene where Martin Short is talking to some baffled Mexican children and talking about how Dorothy <laughs> Gish came up to him one time and told him he really had it, you know? And there's a way in which this movie is a little bit more nostalgic than some of the craziness that we've talked about so far. Yes, and I mean, and there's so many great bits in this movie. There's the one scene where they get kicked off the lot in the movie company that they're working for, and they want to go back and get their clothes so they can move to Mexico. Mm. So it's Steve Martin (laughs) standing on top of that wall, and he's trying to get their attention by pretending to be a bird. And so he's, like, making bird noises, but Chevy and uh, Martin, uh, they're at the bottom of the uh, wall, and he can't get them to do it. So he just starts going, look up here. Look up here. <laughs> and they're just oblivious. And he finally goes, hey, guys. <laughs> Hysterical. I mean, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Is this a, an important movie for you, Carol? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, Again, I don't think I would rank this in my top five. But I also, I'm a big, despite Chevy Chase kind of having a lot of failure, I'm a big Chevy Chase fan mm. just for the National Lampoon's movies, mm-hmm. the vacation movies. I think uh, National Lampoon's Vacation and European Vacation are though those movies have some there are things in them that make me laugh so hard mm-hmm. every time I watch them and I actually they've been replaying them a lot on TV recently and I I think that maybe what did help Chevy Chase Chevy Chase be so brilliant in those was Beverly D'Angelo again like mm-hmm. the you know the I, I think like he really plays off of her so well but he he's interesting because he's so big. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's 6'4". Right. Yeah, he's massive. Yeah. And I and it makes when so physical comedy is just not his his stride. No. <laughs> so, well, he used to fall over all the time on Saturday Night Live. He was, he right. was doing yeah, Gerald was, Ford. Right. And, so it, we're going to unfortunately have to wrap this up. We're, we've kind of <laughs> run out of time. I do want to say it's kind of interesting to me that Martin Short and, uh, and Steve Martin are still touring together. Mm. They clearly are kindred spirits. They're also, I think, kind of the clean living guys. You know, you don't get the feeling <laughs> that they drank a lot or did a lot of cocaine or anything like that. They just sort of, you know, they were there for the comedy and they were both uh, obviously huge comedy nerds. Well, this has been a lot of fun to talk about. Nick, thanks so much for doing this and for writing this book. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Thank right. you. So the book again is Wild and Crazy Guys, How Comedy Mavericks of the 80s Changed Hollywood Forever. Carolyn Payne, a stand-up comedian, actress, dancer, regular guest on this show. Great to meet Dan Callwhite, a stand-up comedian based in New Haven. And thanks to I never did the thank yous today, so the thank yous go especially to Jonathan McNichol who produced this whole show and rounded up all these clips and figured out uh, how we were going to have this uh, very fun conversation. So thank you, uh, Jonathan, and other stuff. 